Hey, this is Ben. And this is Adam, and we are getting on the horn here to tell you about our brand new show, The Greatest Discovery. It is a show that we are extremely proud of, and we thought we would put this into The Greatest Gen feed as a way to share it with you. There are already three episodes, because there are three episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, We're trying to get these out the Tuesday after new episodes of Discovery, and we're having a lot of fun watching Discovery and reviewing it. And uh, the show has really caught on. It's uh, been in the top 10 of Apple Podcasts, TV and film shows for the last uh, week or two. So that's been really exciting. And uh, we thought we'd just stick this in the Greatest Gen feed so that you can try it before you go to The Greatest Discovery and subscribe there. Uh, So if you haven't seen the first episode of Star Trek Discovery, uh, spoilers are ahead. You probably shouldn't listen to what's to come. And uh, instead, watch Star Trek Discovery if you're interested. Uh, I personally think that it is a lot of fun. So uh, here's that. If you don't watch the show and aren't interested, uh, you can just skip this app, and we'll be we'll be back at you with our normal Monday episode on Monday. But uh, yeah, enjoy. Captain. Captain. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast by the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, it's season one, episode one of a brand new show for us. See if we've got another bullet in this Star Trek gun, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's also the first time Star Trek has been a TV show in like more than a decade, which is really exciting. It's weird that it has been gone for so long. I mean, because it feels ever-present at the same time. It's always there. You can watch it at any point. Yeah. It's the, it's the beauty and benefit of streaming media right now. But it's nice to have new Star Trek again. I've heard some people say that this show doesn't jazz them at least what what they've seen so far but they want to thanks for saying that also anyone who said that <laughs> well I'm not, I'm not saying our, our show i'm saying the the show star trek discovery yeah but uh they want to pay the money to get the show more to show that there is a market <laughs> for for star trek stuff than anything hmm. else just an interesting tack to take i mean i don't necessarily disagree with it but you got to uh do something pretty exciting here didn't you yeah i did real briefly i wanted to talk about being invited to the uh the premiere night party which was at the amazing arc light theater in uh in hollywood my favorite place in la to see a movie in the dome yeah you kind of saw uh, a movie there didn't you yeah a friend of the podcast, Ben Fritz, emailed us, and he's like, hey, I have a plus one. Do you want to fight over this broken pool cue <laughs> and see which one of you wants to come with me? Yeah. And I, having stabbed a piece of that cue through your chest as you were moving, decided that I would take the plus one, and yeah. I did. That's just the kind of crazy you are, Adam. <laughs> it was so much fun, Ben. I mean... It was all the Hollywood finery that you would expect for a movie, and the presentation was entirely movie-like. Seeing something in that dome is is a almost cinemascope experience in there. Yeah. And 
I mean, between the blue carpet walk-ins of your Star Trek celebrities, I mean, Bill Shatner sat two rows behind me. Basically, everyone who has ever been in Star Trek was there except Patrick Stewart, George Takei, and Walter Koenig, I think. Wow. I would not want to have Shatner on my six, personally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but like, I got to tell you, it was a real thrill that, that, uh, you know, there was an MC there. He was, uh, he was from the Entertainment Tonight program and, Mm -hmm. and he introduced all the producers, the many producers and cast members of the show. Producers almost outnumbering the cast here. (laughs) And then, uh, and then he gestured to the audience and said, anyone who's ever been involved in, in Star Trek at all, you know, stand up and, and receive a round of applause. And, Everyone from all of the shows appeared. It was amazing and magical uh, to be in the room with all these people I've, I've grown up watching. It was great. There was a definite through line, both from the MC and from the producers, that their duty was to protect Star Trek and to honor it and to respect it. And that made me nervous, <laughs> TBH. Because that sounded like the sort of genuflecting of a person who who may be representing a point of view that they don't feel strongly about. You know, like, I think protection mm-hmm. and honor of the past is a very easy thing to, to make your own, but making something new is uh, comparatively harder. So that tone was an interesting one to take in the beginning. Um, there was a really fun slash campy no-spoilers pre-roll. Uh, with the actor who played Sarek, uh, speaking directly to camera, talking about how important it was that, you know, members of the gathered press there were not to share spoilers on Twitter or anywhere else they felt like doing so. And then he kind of looked camera right, and in the theater were were two fully loathed new Klingons, complete with weaponry, like, <laughs> ready to punish those who would who would dare to spoil. So, like, that was a fun way to kick off what was to come. And uh, what was to come was uh, what I thought a really great start to a brand new Star Trek television series. It's season one, episode one of Star Trek Discovery, a Vulcan hello. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Those are Klingons? What the hell is going on on this ship? Haven't the slightest idea. So this episode starts with a, like, zooming out from Cosmos, which is revealed to be the inside of the eye of a Klingon. This set with with Takuvma's speech uh, is really the only Klingon set we get in, in the first episode. It's, I guess, the bridge of his ship? It's sort of both bridge and religious temple kind of space. Yeah. Like, you know what it kind of reminds me of is those uh, those bad guys in the Chronicles of Riddick, the kind of like death <laughs> cult of the stars. The Klingon religion has been given a ton of dimension, like in the opening instance of this episode that we've never sure. seen before. And the idea of the entire thing starting with an eye being opened is underscoring this idea, like they're waking up. That's our first little moment, and then we smash cut to the surface of a desert world and we're getting real like final mission wesley and picard vibes with the mm-hmm. two characters walking across this desert it's uh the captain 
of the Shenzhou, Captain Giorgio, and her first officer, Michael Burnham. And uh, they're, they're there to get a well going again uh, after some, like, what is it, like, orbital drilling caused, like, a radiation spike to dry out the well of this primitive species. And uh, they're, they're kind of doing, like, a stealth mission. Like, a, like, they're going undercover to start this well back up so that this species doesn't die, but, th- but avoiding making contact so as not to uh, cause a prime directive violation, which is not really how my understanding of the prime directive works. <laughs> but uh, right. it's fun to see some like weird aliens, you know, some weird Whenever primitive aliens. Whenever anything starts with a, with a well or, or something that looks like this, I, I get real there will be blood vibes. <laughs> All yeah. throughout this scene, there's some little crawly guys sort of following their path. The inhabitants of this planet, it seems unclear how intelligent they might be or if they're just scary alien types. They seem to have clothes, which bespeak some intelligence, I guess. And sure. uh, we get a nice close-up of some tentacly fingers. I think that's... Isn't that... Uh, correct me in my terminology, but like... You know something is life if it can reproduce, if it can consume, if it can clothe itself, and uh, and if it drinks water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, all life must clothe itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's just good science, Adam. Yeah. Um, and then they leave, and they uh, the clouds overhead are very ominous. It's the it's the storm uh storm clouds of a uh of the beginning of a story, you know. It was a dark and stormy night and uh the captain and her and and her number 1 are attempting to get to a clear sky so that the ship the, that they're waiting for can pick them up and uh Commander Burnham is is concerned that they're not going to be able to get away from the storm fast enough cuz it's going faster. And she can, and we get some kind of interesting character notes from her. Like she kind of, she kind of like data or C three POs her estimates. You know, she gives like two or three too many uh, degrees of of uh, precision on everything. Right. And uh, she kind of talks Vulcan, but she's not Vulcan. Yeah, you can tell that they are they are close for a captain and a first officer, and the shorthand that the captain uses for the first officer is calling her number one in a pretty cute callback, almost as cute as the as the Star Trek logo written in the sand that they have unwittingly done. This moment didn't work for me. It's dumb because both it is an insane idea that makes no sense given there's a bunch of wind whipping around and they're walking in sand and they're making a Starfleet insignia in the sand. <laughs> Like yeah, like this is a life-threatening situation for them, and they're like, <laughs> it's like being caught in a blizzard and like stopping to make snow angels or something. But it also like, kind of confounds a thing that they're trying to establish about the character of Commander Burnham, which is that she is an education and is smart in a way that many humans are not. Right, and. I feel like a data would have picked up on the shape that they were drawing in the <laughs> in the sand, you know. So her inability to recognize what they've done does not give as much credibility as she should have for her intelligence. 
Yeah, and it's like, like she, she doesn't. She's never. She never sees it, so it's only yeah. for our benefit, right? It's it's this, the kind of yeah, thing this... that you have to get out of the way in the premiere episode, though. You know, God, it's so true. This made me so nervous that like this was the throw to theme song and open. I like, was nervous uh, too because like the acting and the and the dialogue are not that good in this scene. I wonder how thoughtfully they approached how this scene was shot because a lot of it's wide. There's a lot of intercutting of aerial work. I wonder how much of the dialogue they had written for scratch and then just figured they would loop in something better later. What? 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 What's happening? What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? Ben, what'd you think of the opening? Oh, you mean the uh, the the title sequence? The title sequence, uh, the theme song, the sort of blueprint vibe to the whole thing. I'm for it, honestly. Like, I still get the the goosebumps when they'll do the space, the final frontier thing. And yeah. one of the things that is my biggest hates about the J.J. Abrams reboots is that they make that the like the like Hippocratic oath of captains or something. <laughs> Which is just like an insanely stupid piece of writing. But uh, I do kind of wish we got it. Uh, I feel like the the series that choose not to have that uh, really set a tone that is different from the ones that choose to have it. Yeah, that's fair. So I am, I'm expecting this to be more in the tradition of your Deep Space Nine than your Next Generation's. Um, uh, I liked it. I liked the music of it, and I liked the music throughout the episode as well. Super cinematic sounding. It's very aesthetically pleasing, the, the graphics and stuff. So we cut to the bridge of the USS Shenzhou, uh, Captain Giorgio's ship, and uh, we like do a lot of like camera flies through windows and, and uh, deflector fields and stuff in this, in this episode. The uh, we're establishing a bunch of things. We've got a communications beacon that has been damaged by an unknown force. We've got a bunch of characters on the bridge. We've got a lot of shop talk. Um, not a lot of time is spent introducing these characters. I mean, we've got maybe a little bit of time spent introducing our weird loafy science officer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but... you're really right about this, Ben. Like everyone besides Lofi science officer, the captain, Lieutenant and Michael, Saru. are uh, are real afterthoughts. They're real supporting cast, and by that I mean like deep in support. They're just shot in as people looking at each other while the action happens. It's, I mean, and I understand why they they're doing that because this is not the ship that we're going to live on for the rest of the series, but. It very much struck me that this is the first episode of a television show and they are not going to the pains that so many opening episodes of television shows go to to introduce characters and like one thing about them, you know? Like they are yeah. not going around the circle getting everybody's name and like, you know, showing data, trying to whistle and failing. Uh, Seth MacFarlane isn't doing the roll call. <laughs> I, th- I felt like that was a very strong choice. I like that too because it keeps the it keeps the attention on the story. It does not stop the story in order to do that, uh, and in that way, like it's efficient. Uh, yeah. So the one character we do get to know is Lieutenant Saru, who is kind of like a silly putty 
accident of a character. <laughs> he looks like Silly Putty that has been rolled in the comics and then turned into a face. Yeah, like rolled in the comics and then just stretched over a normal man's face. <laughs> um, he is like the one character trait that he is established with is being super skittish about all things. But they're really curious about this beacon and the only thing that they can think of in the in the neighborhood that might have caused it is like undetectable on their sensors. Like they keep like zooming in on this spot on their on their screen and it's and it's just blurred out. Kind of Commander... looks like the predator in the forest when uh when Schwarzenegger <laughs> and all his guys are trying are like holding still looking trying to see if it's out there. Like it just doesn't look right. Yeah. Yeah, Commander Burnham keeps going, "Come on!" <laughs> I really like the relationship between uh Saru and Michael here. Like they're like there's professional respect, but there's also professional antagonism between them. She is 180 degrees in the other direction from him style-wise. And yeah. she's like, let's fucking put on some spacesuits and go check it out. And yeah. he's he's like saying all the reasons that's a terrible idea. And the captain does like a classic captain thing. It's like, you think it's a terrible idea? You go with her. And he <laughs> totally talks the captain out of it. And so out Michael goes in a spacesuit. And Adam, I don't know how you feel about spacesuits in Star Trek. We get so few of them. I yeah. love it when a spacesuit gets whipped out. Yeah, I do too. And this spacesuit seems really unique for Star Trek spacesuits. It's it's like all of the form fitment of a first contact spacesuit, but with that giant backpack shuttle that, you know, an almost modern spacesuit would have. Right. Like, it is bulky. It does not look easy. And it's it got doesn't. a really neat heads-up display on that giant glass panel. A profoundly dangerously large glass panel near her face <laughs> the spacewalk does not go super great she's going like full throttle through this asteroid field and she's having a blast but as she gets closer to the thing that they are only able to see through a telescope she you know kind of fades out of their ability to stay in contact with her like they lose telemetry from the suit and she shows up on this thing, and it's, like, old. It's it's like an old artifact in space, like a huge carved stone object. This really gooses the tension, too, because she's also on a countdown timer uh, for being out there. Like, there's, a, there's an, a dangerous amount of radiation in the area where she's going. She's got 18 minutes to do with air and back, and when they lose t- contact with her, they are really clock-watching to see if she can make it home, because once they lose contact, they have no idea if she will. She is standing on the top of this thing. You know, she's she's looking at that clock, you know, trying to kind of maximize the amount of exploration she can do before she has to head home. And a shadow falls across the part of the object she's standing on. She looks up, and there's, like, the scariest Klingon. Like, I don't think we've ever seen a Klingon spacesuit before, but this thing is great. This is some of my favorite costuming I've ever seen in Trek. Yeah, Worf's Klingon spacesuit in First Contact doesn't count. No, that's just a Federation spacesuit with an extra big helmet to accommodate his loaf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this guy is profoundly scary, and they do that horror film technique where they let Michael drag the frame into him, 
And so his when when the Klingon is revealed, it is a surprise. It's almost like a jump surprise. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good little shock and the the suit is really scary and this Klingon is like holding a batleth which has been redesigned to look significantly less like a piece of plywood that has been spray painted silver. Uh but she like she like hits the thrusters and and the batleth goes right through this Klingon. <laughs> like you'd think with this this Klingon spacesuit would be a little bit better armored than than it is. Yeah, that's an interesting point. She really oopsie daisy murders him. It's the kind of murder that my wife might have like uh had had to be involved with when she was a product liability lawyer. Like uh the company that made the spacesuit uh warranted that it was batleth proof and uh <laughs> we have pretty good footage of a batleth going right through it and killing this guy. So the family of the of the fallen warrior is uh, suing for compensatory damages. <laughs> what really accelerates the tension here after this action sequence is that you have a number of things being gathered into this this point of focus. The idea that there's something out there that the ship doesn't recognize, a possibly dead Michael floating out in space, and a ship that doesn't know what to do. We have engaged... The Klingons. 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 What the hell is going on on this ship? No idea. What is this? So Michael has a dream, and this is about halfway through the episode, and her dream is about growing up on Vulcan. This is how the episode tells us about how she had a traumatic childhood experience where Klingons killed her whole family uh, because the... She like growing up as a child on Vulcan is depicted uh, in the last decade exclusively via showing children taking tests, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the test uh, really wants to ask her questions about Klingons killing her family. Really, really kind of unfair. But like, if your test is supposed to grind you down emotionally if that's one of its functions then uh then it's doing its job um the other thing that's revealed in this dream is that Sarek is the daddy figure for michael burnham which is <laughs> a pretty adventurous piece of writing I mean, <laughs> is he the only teacher in this vulcan school because <laughs> I thought the same thing. Like this was this was another effort to be a little cute, right? There could be other teachers. We could make another character here. It's not and... that it's not like Vulcans are that varied in their affect too. <laughs> like it could it literally could be any Vulcan, but right. this is this is all about like tying it into the tapestry of the franchise, I think. Yeah. She wakes up in like the solar bombardment tube that they make Lilu in in the fifth element and uh they're like not quite done putting her skin back on and she like hops up in her toilet paper bikini and runs up to the bridge and says like there's klingons out there like we gotta <laughs> we gotta go to red alert this is fucking bullshit and it's like not a good look for her really like she storms the bridge all bloody and and crazy-eyed I totally the, get the captain and the bridge crew's reaction to her. 
it's amazing, right? Because like they say that they picked her up three hours ago. She's been she's been getting stitched back together for three hours, and they are still up on the bridge, like in the total same mode that they were in before she did her spacewalk. Like, all right, well, let's like do a little bit more scanning. What do you guys say? Uh, maybe that lady with a computer for a head can do some scanning. <laughs> she seems like she would be good at that. What this does establish is the relationship between Michael and Georgiou again, which is Michael has the latitude to step to the captain, and she does here, and she does it repeatedly. The captain maybe has given too much latitude. Like, this is, like, if you think about, like, the captain-first officer relationships we've seen depicted over the course of Star Trek, this is probably the loosest that I can think of. But uh, as she is, like, stamping her foot and telling everybody to prepare for set tripping, some Klingons decloak off the the bow of the ship. And they are, like, right off the bow. There's one thing I noticed about this I, I wanted to ask you about is the Klingon ships are always, like, really, really close to the Federation ships when they're nose to nose. It's a real power move. Yeah. Pretty intense. What did you think about uh, Shaniqua Martin-Green's performance in this in this episode? I sort of thought that uh, she really Abe Lincoln's it with with her ex <laughs> with like how she talks to other people. Like it's very beautiful and and pre thought in a way that doesn't sound like anyone else that she's talking to, but yeah. it also sounds really cute in a way that that sort of took me out of her message and made it about the messenger. Some of the time it feels like her dialogue is written for the trailer. Yeah, yeah, I could see that too. Um, What are things we could clip from this and then put into that 30 seconds? I'm really interested to see how this character develops because like, there were parts of it that really charmed me. Like when she does a captain's log or a first officer's log, I guess it is, it's more... It's more descriptive of context and and feeling than we we have almost ever gotten. It's more interesting than we've almost ever gotten. Right. But it's also very weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially because she's a human who grew up in a Vulcan culture. There is so much humanity about her from from how she steps to the captain. Like, it's weird that the one enduring Vulcan thing about her is her manner of speech. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? We've encountered them. Those Klingons? Let's talk about what's going on with these Klingons, Adam. The, the like, dude that she killed gets wrapped up and mummified and then put in a sarcophagus and... I guess, like, affixed to the outside of the ship, and it's revealed that there are just tons of sarcophagi all over this Klingon ship. I really like this concept. This felt very spider-like to me, you mm. know? Yeah. Wrapping up a dead guy and then sticking him in the web, and, and I thought the ship looked fairly web-like, too, in its configuration. Were you surprised at, for a pilot episode, at how much subtitling there was throughout I I admired that. Like I'm glad they didn't just go straight dub. Yeah. But but that was a interesting choice to me if what you're trying to go for is the maximum amount of viewers. It's a pretty interesting and a pretty like modern choice, I think. And yeah. uh I liked it. 
So the other thing, like, so like Takuvma reveals in speaking to his assembled followers that uh, he's he's looking to replace the guy that got killed who had the title of torchbearer. The the guy that was like next in line does not uh, does not bear out W slash R slash T honorability. <laughs> and uh, a a voice from the back of the room rings out, and uh, and a an albino Klingon presents himself. His name is Voke, and he uh, would like to would like to take the job. I don't know how, if you're him, how you even get on that ship. And this is one of the things that that I wish there was even a little more backstory to, because this ship is clearly super important. It may even be, you know, religious in nature. I kind of felt like the thing they're setting up is that Tukuvma is like almost a cultist. He's almost like a uh, he's the uh, he's the Elron Hubbard of the Klingon Empire, and his goal is to unite the houses. I was but... thinking David Koresh, but that's fine. Sure. <laughs> uh, use whatever cult figure that that works for you is what I would recommend to the viewer here. Well, he's trying to he's trying to you know unite the he's the Jim Jones of the Klingon Empire, <laughs> looking looking to unite the houses, but like doesn't have any cred at this point. Like he's kind of he's kind of long shotting his rise to the top. He's kind of shooting yeah. the moon here, and I like my headcanon on why Voke could get on that ship is that like. In the process of amassing followers, like cult leaders tend to get people who are on the margins, who are looking for something that normal society can't provide them. Yeah, I mean this guy's this guy's fucking dragging a mop around on Kronos. He wants to he wants to do something better. And uh, and if this guy gives him a chance, then he's gonna get on the weird spider ship. I mean, this is also like a lot of talking about Kalos and how the the houses have been warning, but everybody should be, you know, united under allegiance to Kalos, and uh, that's sort of where we're at with these Klingons. Boy, are they going to be bummed when they find out what happens to Kalos in a hundred and fifty years or so? <laughs> God, everything on the Shenzo has been sort of paused at this point, right? They're yeah. staring out at at this ship in front of them. They're kind of waiting for further instructions. They don't feel necessarily empowered to do anything on their own. Like, this is clearly not the flagship of the Federation. I think that's important. Right. So, yeah, and when they discuss the situation with Hollow Admiral Anderson, like, not only is the captain kind of getting the third degree, but, like, Michael Burnham comes in. She's got, like, very strong opinions about what the right course of action is here and she's not afraid to voice them to the admiral in what kind of situation is the admiral that he can see michael and captain Giorgio? like there is a counter scene to this where he's in a room he's in a like, room and so as soon as someone walks into the same room as Giorgio, like it's interesting to think about that projection capturing something else and transmitting it over. Like, yeah. how much of this room gets sent to where the Admiral is? Where is the, like, Xbox sensor that is picking all this stuff up? Right. Um, but the point she's making is that, like, the Klingons are are here looking to pick a fight. Like, they shot this communication beacon 
to draw somebody from the Federation out so that they, they could pick a fight. Pretty classic Federation fight-picking move, too. Like, a lot of next-gen stories start this way. What? 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 Sounds like nonsense. What is going on? Run! Why? Go! Why? I'm trying to save you. This ship isn't going anywhere. Run! Why? Why? I'm trying to save all of you. Who are you? The other hollow, hollow call we see in this episode is when she blows a call into Sarek, who uh, this maybe is even more confounding from a how does this holographic conference call technology work? Because like Sarek goes and like and like sits on the edge of her desk at some point. So it's like, is Sarek? In a room that is identically configured to her stateroom on the USS <laughs> Shenzhou. That would be super logical. He tells her about uh, how the Vulcans established peaceful relations with the Klingons. And uh, he does it in the most dramatic way, which is, all right, I'm going to tell you. And then smash cut to her running onto the bridge saying, we've got to shoot the Klingons. <laughs> When you're trying to convince a superior officer to do something crazy... Form a cogent argument around the thing that you're advocating for when (laughs) what you're advocating for is shooting the the ship that's got sarcophagi all over its hull. That's like her humanity, right? Like, if she were more Vulcan, I think her reasoning would have made more sense at the time. The logic behind it is that the Klingons only respect people that pick fights. And if you pick a fight every time, they will respect you. But uh, by the time she's like like laid this all out, the captain is, has basically decided like you are not in great shape and not exactly respecting the chain of command. So why don't the two of us go to my office and talk this over and like see if we can't cool off. And Commander Burnham is like, yeah, cool. And they go back to the office and she's like, okay, I'm really hearing you. I was totally out of line. Anyways, oh, oh, what's that on your shirt? And ne- Vulcan neck pinch. She does not do that thing that many Vulcans do when they neck pinch someone is to sort of like the pinch happens and then they sort of ride them down to the ground. Michelle Yeoh just kind of drops here. It's super fucked. I had to rewind it because when I watched the episode, I looked down. I was like writing a note when it happened and I looked up and I was like, where'd the captain go? <laughs> One other thing that's happened during this scene that I think it's, is important to know is that the Klingons have lit the beacon, which has sent out a blinding light everywhere, like everywhere yeah. in the galaxy. And it is served to uh, send its location back to other Klingons. It's also served to make lens flares happen on the bridge on the regular so every shot on the bridge from here on out has been flared. Yeah, and the and the view screen is like all white, so everybody is totally washed out. And uh, Commander Burnham like like struts back onto the bridge, starts giving orders to prepare attacks, and uh, and Lieutenant Saru is like, "Hey, like we heard we heard the first half of the argument that then you went and sorted <laughs> out in there. So we're kind of." all under the impression that the captain is not crazy about that idea. And she's like about to give the order. To, she gives the order to fire, in fact. And uh, the captain walks back out, dustbuster in hand, and uh, tells tells the uh, tactical officer to belay that order. And uh... Is Saru the cob of this scene <laughs> D- during, this, uh, during this mutinous conflict? 
Yeah, she she yells, "Weps, belay that order, Cobb. <laughs> <laughs> take take Commander Burnham into the brig." And uh, the episode ends with Captain like holding pistol to her first officer as twenty four Klingon ships warp into the sector. Everybody on the bridge shits themselves, basically. This is a cliffhanger that I didn't get to experience at the premiere. Uh, this was shown in one unbroken 90-minute episode. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Your tongue is too human. I am programmed in multiple techniques. Your tongue is too human. A broad variety of pleasuring. Uh, What's happening? Uh, what is going on? I'm getting very close to... I sense it coming now. This is CBS trying to push people to their app, right? Like their... It had to be a cliffhanger. This is the best of both worlds fire moment of this of this uh, season of this show. I kind That brings of... up an interesting question, Ben. As the one of the two of us that actually used the app to watch the show, how did you find that experience? Uh, I kind of feel like it was a marketing mistake to call these episode one and episode two. I think that... Uh, this should have been called one episode and they should have said, we're going to show the second half on our app. The unfortunate thing is that the reason is so cynical for breaking it up the way they did. And that doesn't feel good. Yeah, it's too bad. Did you like the episode, Adam? I still really only think about this as one contiguous piece. And so, like, rather than just withhold judgment, I will say, yeah, I did. I really did. It's really impressive, and it looks so expensive. It looks like a film. It sounds like a film. Everything is cinematic about it. Yeah. I'm curious to watch this on TV again and see if, if, it's, if its bigness is lost in that sort of translation, because so, it played so big in the theater what about you i think uh you know like i had real misgivings when it started and i think that there are some things that i don't love about it i don't love the kind of license that they constantly take with redesigning all the aliens and going like oh yeah now there's another founding member of the federation silly putty guy like Mm -hmm. You know, like the retconning of species. I don't love that it takes place in the kind of TOS era. Um, I I wish they had set this, you know, in the post-Voyager future. But all that said, like, the main character is a super interesting character who is a very Star Trek character, I feel. Like, she is torn between two worlds, and I feel like that is... Like some of the most interesting characters we've ever had. I mean, Spock and and Data and Worf and uh, you know the list goes on. Like all of these, all of these characters that kind of Bolana Torres, like that that kind of are are trying to figure out their place in a world that they're on. They're not a hundred percent one thing or another. Uh, are great and Star Trek is a great is a great universe to explore those themes. And I will say. When I turned off the the broadcast to go into the app to try and find the second episode, I was left thinking, like, how is this going to be a science fiction show and not an action show? Yeah, that point is crucial as well as the others. I mean, I'm trying really hard not to 
grade it against what I wish it was in terms of what time period it exists and instead like judge it for the choices that it is making versus the ones that I wish it had made. It is, it's making strong choices and is, you know, like part of what makes Trek bad is the equivocation that it does. It, it When Trek is bad, it does not fully believe in the story that it's telling and it's all mealy and this is super confident in a way that that gives me hope for the rest of the series. And I think that the, you know, the costume design and the set design and the casting are all strong and cool and new feeling. The, the casting is an element that is just as cinematic as anything else. Like, these are strong actors. I wanted to talk about the camera work a little bit. This is a much more cinematic uh, kind of camera work than we have had. I mean, even on Enterprise, which was a more modern looking show. Um, and I wonder if the like Dutch angles that they always go to, especially on the bridge, you know, the camera is always kind of tilted. I wonder if that is because this is not our ship. Like our ship, hmm. we haven't met our ship yet. That's interesting. Ben, I just have one question. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! <laughs> oh, we're doing that. Well, uh, for those of you who are tuning in that are not friends of DeSoto yet, uh, one thing we do on The Greatest Generation, our other show, is we find a character that is having the most fun or doing something incongruous that uh, just seems real weird, and it's based on uh, the character of Jim Shimoda from episode two of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, who <laughs> makes a Jenga set out of isolinear chips. Uh, <laughs> uh, my Shimoda for this episode is Commander Burnham for the uh, the having a blast spacewalk. Like before she bumps into Darth Klingon on the object, she's like totally hot rotting through that asteroid field and uh people on the bridge going like oh her heart rate is elevated she must be having fun <laughs> you know? i'm so glad they didn't star trek up the music of that moment and do magic carpet ride or or whatever old classic rock song that they felt yeah. like throwing in there thank you so much for the restraint on that one <laughs> that was appreciated did you have a drunk shimoda adam yeah mine uh was going to go to her counterpoint captain Georgiou. that uh, that scene in the cold open was the most Shimoda moment to me. The walking around, making the yeah the uh, the Federation symbol in the sand, uh, really for no other reason than because it was fun and cute. Was uh, <laughs> was really like a a crazy decision by her, especially at a life threatening moment. So I'm gonna give mine to her. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons, Klingons, those Klingons. Ben, what do we have coming up on the next episode of our brand new Star Trek series? The next episode of Star Trek Discovery is Season 1, Episode 2, Battle at the Binary Stars. Face-to-face -face with Klingon vessels, the USS Shenzhou prepares for the possibility of war if negotiations fail. Amidst the turmoil, Burnham looks back to her Vulcan upbringing for guidance. Do you remember this episode, Adam? I do. I just saw it last week. <laughs> really racking up the tension with those primary school callbacks. Well, uh, that'll be our next episode. Uh, we don't have Priority One messages on this episode, but we will have those available by the time 
Uh, we record episode three, so if you would like to send a message to a loved one or promote your company or product or something, those will be on sale on MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron, so go take a look. The Greatest Discovery is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison. Produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusea. You can find Adam Pranica on Twitter at CutForTime, or you can find Benjamin Harrison on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Make sure to use the hashtag GreatestGen. You can continue the conversation over at the Facebook group and page, or at the GreatestGen subreddit. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.